Struan Murray's first publication was a drawing in Pingu magazine, age seven. But his debut novel, Orphans of the Tide, has attracted rather more critical acclaim, with Struan just being awarded the 2021 Branford Bose Award. The sequel, Shipwreck Island, was published early this year, and Struan joined Nicky Gamble in the reading corner to tell us more about his year so far. So many readers that I know both adults and children have absolutely loved this book. And I'd like to start by exploring something of its journey, because although you have just won this award, the Branford Bose, it's not the first award that you won for this book. Mm. You won the Bath Novel Award. Now, mm. tell us a little bit about what that award is for and what it did for the book. There's two awards each year, the Bath Novel Award and then the Bath um, Children's Novel Award. And... I'd been working on this novel, Orphans of the Tide, although it was called something different then. I'd been wor- I started work on that in about 2015. It had been, you know, kind of the first the first draft has been this kind of frenzied rush, and it had all kind of fallen into place very in a way that I, you know, I never really found with writing before, and so I had a really good feeling about it. And then I actually sent it out to publishers. And it wasn't really getting any attention. And one of the key things that they said, and this was kind of repeated from numerous places, was that it was actually too old. I wrote it for a teenage audience. And so I kind of just abandoned it because I thought, well, there's no, if if they don't want it as it is, then I I don't really know how I could fix it. But then my partner just happened to say one day, look, I've come across this award. I really think you should send your book into it. Um, and I was like, oh, fine. You know, I'd, I'd completely given it up on by then. I'd started others, moved on to other stories um, for a younger audience because I thought, OK, well, that, if that's what I need to do, then that's what I need to do. But I don't see how I can do can make this book into a children's book. So I entered it and then it won, which was a complete shock. So so one of the, the unique things about the, the Bath Novel Award for, for children is that um, it's actually judged by a panel of children. And so to have the actual people that this book was meant for tell me that it was a good book was really quite something. And when you win this award, you get agents kind of coming to, to offer you representation. And agents are obviously the, the first kind of gate that you have to get through in order to get a book published so I was contacted by Stephanie Thwaites who's my now my agent and she read my story and she immediately had a plan for how to edit it to make it fit with a younger audience so what is called the you know the middle grade market and then very quickly got a publishing deal and then it all kind of started to snowball from there. Excellent so by the time you submit it or or it gets picked up by Penguin Random House. Mm. What changes have you made at that point? It was a lot to do with getting the age of the characters down. So they were all kind of 15 and 16 and they needed to be 12 and 13. So modifying their behaviours, making them just a bit bit more childlike. It was very easy compared to some other big edits I've had to do on books. It was one of the easier ones. And I think that was because in a way the book already was for that age range. It's just I hadn't realised. And so it was quite quite cosmetic things in many cases, just like literally whenever a character's age was referred to, change the age. And the length had to come down a bit. So yeah, it wasn't. It really wasn't too difficult, and, and and also one of the big features of the story, which is that it has these diary entries interspersed yeah. with the main narrative, that was introduced at that point, and so that was one of the that was probably the biggest kind of 
revelation at that redrafting stage was realizing, oh, wow, this actually is a really powerful kind of device for kind of world building, achieve so many things, uh, you know, kind of explaining how the world works and explaining elements of like fundamental parts of the kind of more magical parts of the story. Just before we uh, leave this kind of editing process, we do have to give a call out to your editor at Penguin Random Mm. House, who is a sort of joint recipient of this award. Mm. And that is Ben Yeah, He's there to challenge me and to kind of be like, well, do you need this bit? Do you need that bit? Like, why is this here? Like, does it really serve a purpose? And so it can be quite a challenging thing to have to be confronted with because it really forces you to think very carefully about your story. Fantastic. So what I want to do now is just to delve a little deeper into Mm. the story and to start us off, could you just summarise for us uh, what the story is about? So the story is all about this place called the city, which is this ancient, mysterious place that um, exists almost entirely underwater. So the only part of it that's still inhabited by people is the very, very peak. And so all the people live up there. And there are these these people called the whale lords who get them their food, who go hunting for fish and sharks and whales and things like that. But there is also this organization called the Inquisition that rule the city. And their job is to hunt for somebody called the Vessel, who um, is at large within the city at any time. And the Vessel is this individual who is basically possessed by this, this evil god called the Enemy. And so this god, the enemy, is always kind of trying to undermine the city, is always seeking for ways to cause chaos and destruction. And so the Inquisition's tasked with with finding this this person at at any time. Mm -hmm. But our story begins when the the tide goes down one morning and a whale is found upon a church rooftop. And so I think I'm going to read a little bit from you now. Um, And so... Basically, what's happened here is Ellie, so our main character, who is this 13-year-old girl um, who is an inventor, who is kind of um, taken on the mantle of, of the city inventor from her mother. She's come down one morning to find this whale on a rooftop, and there's all these people gathered around, and they're, they're very confused by what this whale is doing there. And most of them think it's this evil omen. So here we go. Please, Ellie yelled but no one paid her any attention. She pulled a marble-sized device from her pocket, wrapped in yellowed paper. With a flick of her wrist, she hurled it up at the seawall. There was a crack and a flash of light and a riot of frenzied screeching as the seagulls fled. The crowd staggered back and shielded their eyes, shocked into silence. Ellie held up her hand. Listen, she said, and so they all did. And in the silence, they could hear it drifting towards them. It was the whale. The whale was singing. It was a melodious, mournful rise and fall, reverberating from deep within the creature. Ellie had heard whales singing before, but never one out of water. She had thought it was part of some mating ritual, yet here was this dying whale singing for whose benefit she could not guess. They all listened in awe for many long minutes. Then the whale opened its eye. Incredible, Ellie whispered. 
The eye was the dark blue of a cold sea. It focused on her. She could have sworn it. And all she knew was its gaze and that song. And for those few wondrous moments, all the pain inside her seemed to go. The song grew quieter, as if it were drifting off to the horizon. The eye closed, the tail stopped moving, and all was silent, even the sea. I've got it, yelled Anna triumphantly, pushing her way to the seawall, holding the flensing tool over her head. The crowd turned to look at her. What? she asked, then handed the tool down to Ellie, blunt end first. What are you going to do? the guardsman called. Ellie pointed to the whale's belly. I'll have to cut it open, low down. That will prevent any gas building up inside. Ellie rested the tool on one of the many grooves that ran lengthways along the whale's white belly and pressed. The skin was tough and thick, and she was soon sweating from the effort. Finally, the blade punctured the skin, and Ellie almost lost her balance as it sank into the soft organs underneath. A rank smell seeped from the wound, and Ellie held her breath. She worked the flensing tool back and forth, cutting down the creature's side. The flesh parted, purple guts dropping from the opening. Ooh, look at all that blood, called Anna. Can I have a go? It smells awful, said Ellie, but I suppose so. Just be... She stopped. Anna, what's wrong, she said. Anna's face had contorted, her eyes fixed in disbelief. Sweet mercy, said the guardsman, his hand at his mouth. There was a confused muttering from the crowd. An old lady screamed. For some reason, Ellie found she couldn't move. Her body stiffened. The flensing tool fell from her fingers. She looked down. Something was holding her by the ankle. It was skinny and trembling and slicked with thick blood. A hand reaching out from the cut in the whale. (laughs) And I have to say, listening to you read that there, Mm. I'm just struck by how crafted this novel is. At that part in the story, you don't really know what's coming. Mm. But I found that you were feeding in many things that uh, were not obvious clues, Mm. but are clues when you go back. And it was just so... So subtly done, I thought. That was always one of the the great attractions to writing this story is that I knew that without giving too much away that I would be hiding something in plain sight to the reader because there would be this great revelation somewhere. Tell me about that image. I mean, it's so striking, Mm. very surreal. Uh, Is that where it all started? Mm, Yeah. I, I can't quite remember how, but that image just came into my head of this whale on this rooftop. And it was, like you say, it was just so surreal. And when you're trying to come up with a new story, you really need those, you need those sparks, those moments that turn into other things that kind of um, get carried away with themselves. They, They pose all these questions in the author's mind that you need to answer. And in trying to answer them, you end up with the, the, the skeleton of your story. Mm -hmm. So I was immediately like, well, what's the whale doing there? Why, why is it there? And most importantly, maybe what, what is going to happen next? And it was in trying to answer those questions that I came up with the boy because I, I, 
when it, I was asking myself, okay, well, what does happen to whales when they when they die on land? You know, what, what how do you get rid of a whale when it's when it gets onto land? And so I did some some searches on the internet, and some pretty gruesome YouTube videos came up, and um, I discovered that basically when a whale dies on land, it starts to starts to swell up from the inside because there's all this decay, and then eventually it explodes. And I knew, you know, right there, I knew, okay, well, this is a story for, for, you know, a younger audience, because it's just what a great way to begin with, with that threat of this exploding whale. But to stop a whale exploding, you have to cut it open, which is why Ellie is there cutting it open in chapter one. And when I was thinking, okay, well, what could happen if she cuts it open? Well, what, what better thing to happen than to have someone actually reach out from the cut and grab her? And it was such a gift, that idea. I mean, the other striking image Mm. uh, in the story is the city itself. Mm. And on the jacket, um, it looks very like Mont Saint-Michel, the coast of France. It's got that kind of look to it. Uh, Was that an inspiration for you? Or or it could be Edinburgh. You're from Edinburgh, aren't you? You've got big (laughs) cliffs and a Um, castle on top there. Edinburgh was Edinburgh was the big inspiration and Mont Saint-Michel was a happy coincidence because then I was like well actually a place like that really does exist in the world and 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 then once I once I made that connection it started to kind of inform how the world looks and it is very very much it looks a lot like Mont Saint-Michel but really it was Edinburgh that inspired the kind of soul of the city. You've talked about the Inquisition when you were setting up the story, which is a very kind of menacing Mm. um, presence through the story. And even though you've made it um, middle grade, you haven't sort of retreated from Mm. those darker elements. I mean, there are executions or the threat of execution anyway, even if we don't actually witness one. So I'm assuming that this is inspired by those inquisitions of the i'm trying to think 16th century 17th century spanish inquisition yeah Yeah. they were they were a big influence they all you know they also i mean they dress a bit like gestapo officers as well like there's 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 quite a few kind of influences for them on, on why they look the way they do but i mean really it's just that i needed once I realized this boy was going to come out of the whale and was going to be seen not as some kind of positive thing, but as this very evil omen and that he would be persecuted. I needed, you know, I needed to come up with this body of people who would be doing the persecuting and, um, and they really seemed to fit the bill. Mm. And it's sort of drawing on people's through many different cultures, Mm. that sort of fear of not some kind of external evil, but how people perceive maybe mental illness yeah. or depression. Yeah, definitely. And I was, yeah, I wanted to make that connection between the way that, you know, even now a lot of a lot of mental illness is stigmatized and a lot of people are kind of pressured, you know, society kind of convinces people to feel shame and to and to feel like they need to hide you know, they're, they're suffering from, from the world and that they, and I think most importantly, this, this idea that you should be ashamed of the way that you feel. And I wanted to kind of relate that to, you know, persecution by the Inquisition and yeah, to really have a fantasy story that explores mental illness 
I think felt like something quite quite timely. And, you know, that's the, the the amazing power of fantasy novels is that you can't you know, the, the way you can ex- you can parallel real world things and 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 in that way kind of shine a light on them. So it's a pacey mm. story. It's a fantasy adventure. It's strong on friendship bonds and the characters. Are the thing that for me really shine mm. through Anna, Ellie, Seth. Anna's probably my favourite. I just love her so much. She's everyone's favourite. Um, yeah, tell us about Anna. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, again, it's quite annoying because I didn't. I, I always hoped Ellie would be everyone's favourite, but <laughs> people are just like. I think that's because Ellie has the most of me in her, and I'm kind of want. I want people to really be drawn to Ellie, but but Anna is just like this. You know, she's at, she's Ellie's best friend. She helps Ellie with her inventions and kind of with her machines and. She is extremely, you know, brave and but very mischievous, and brash and rude. And um, she's quite a kind of quite a parallel to Ellie. Ellie's quite kind of withdrawn and insular. Anna is extremely outgoing and bolshy. And but she, you know, she's also the most kind of loyal friend you could hope for. I mean, she was a wonderful thing, a wonderful character to write because at no point did I ever. At no point did I ever sit down and think, "Who is Anna?" Anna was just kind of there from the start. She 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 was exactly who she needed to be from from the first page. It's been wonderful to see how well people respond to to her. She also brings a lot of comedy to what could otherwise be maybe too quite a dark story without her. And Seth is very strange and enigmatic. Mm. Well, you would be if you came out of a whale, wouldn't you? Really? Mm. <laughs> yeah. When he arrives, he has almost no memory of who he is. And that, that's a difficult character to write because how do you make someone interesting when they have no sense of self and no real conception of where they've come from or where they're going? And he went through some real changes in the course of the story. I mean, Seth, you know, he, Seth kind of goes out to kind of protect himself almost to a fault. When, when Ellie first gets him, he's willing, he's he's kind of ready to just go marching out and take on the Inquisition himself, whereas Ellie has to kind of convince him not to. And he has a lot more anger as well at, who, at, at why he can't remember things. Uh, he's not willing to just accept that he cannot remember things. He's He's furious. And actually anger became quite an important thing for him and, and exploring that. Um, was quite a big part of his journey, especially into the second book. He really, he really has to face some really big kind of life changes. Um, it's amazing to see where he's come from originally, because you know Anna was Anna never changed. Anna has been exactly who she was from the start, but Seth has just been com- completely transformed. And it's yeah, I, I mean, I recommend it actually as a tip to other authors is if you're struggling with a character and you want to really change them, change their name. And um, so he was originally called Eric. I was going to say, um, I can't imagine him as an Eric. Exactly right, and and to me, it's it's madness that he was ever called Eric. And um, just changing the name for, means your brain no longer is much more willing to let go of lots of their character traits. Just while we're talking about names, mm. I think one of the things that's interesting is that all of your children have names that are quite ordinary. You know, mm. Ellie, Anna, but the adults don't. Why do you think that is? In part, it's because the adults all are known by their surnames, but but there was a deliberate reason for it as well, which is that I'm quite keen. I was quite keen on this story that the children do have quite regular names because in fantasy characters often have quite extraordinary names. 
But for this particular story, I really just wanted the children to feel ordinary. I wanted them to feel like, like, so a reader would just could think that they could be in this story in this world. With the adults, however, there, there, I mean, there are no wholly good adults in this story. All the adults are kind of complicated and some of them are really nasty. And even the ones that seem quite good are actually quite problematic in their own way. And so I really wanted to separate the world of the children and the world of the adults. And that seemed like a good way of doing it. So they all have quite grand Victorian surnames that they are known by or, or else names that I invented that kind of sound a bit Victorian because I, I, I wanted the adults to seem like this whole other world. It is a complex piece of world building as fantasies of this scale are going to be. And I wanted to come back to this. Most of it's in a third person kind of classic Mm. uh, narrative style. Uh, But I wanted to come back to this insertion of the diary Mm. and what that does. Perhaps we ought to tell listeners who's writing the diary. It's the diary of a man called Claude Hestermeyer, who is a... um, a scholar who works at the university whose best friend has just died. And in his first diary entry, he realizes that he has become the vessel. So he is now the vessel to the enemy. He can see the enemy. And these diary entries are interspersed throughout the book to kind of show what happens to him. You know, he has to hide who he is. He has to go to such lengths to try and avoid being discovered. But then he's, he, he realizes that he's going to actually have to start relying on the enemy for help in order to stay undetected. And this is where we discover what the enemy's nature is, which is that he's kind of like this, he's almost like an evil genie. He will grant you wishes and they can be, they can be quite extraordinary wishes. But if you make a wish, then he, the, the enemy, it, the enemy is then able to make wishes in return. So it gets to make an its own wish. And that wish will be in some way equivalent to the, the wish that the vessel made. So Hestemeyer at one point wishes for a lot of money to help out the father of his dead friend. But then you discover that the, the enemy took that money from the university where Hestemeyer works. And then he gets caught for having that money. And so he has to then go on the run. So basically, if you, if you, once you start relying on the enemy for help, things rapidly escalate and get out of control. So basically the diaries were this great way to lay the foundations for the, the, all the kind of the world building. And it, it meant that I had to, I was able to avoid a lot of exposition because in the early drafts, there was lots of scenes where Ellie was basically just telling Seth what the enemy is. And that was very boring. And so having the diary entries meant that I had this whole other kind of arena, this whole theatre in which I could do something very different. The story is quite elusive. And we mentioned that with Jonah and the whale Mm. at the beginning. And there are other things that uh, remind us of the the story of Noah and the ark. And there are things that remind us of, you know, Poseidon, the god of the Mm. uh, sea and holding back the seas, which is also sort of biblical too. How much of that was conscious, you pulling and drawing on your sort of knowledge of that mythology? I think a lot of it is subconscious. I, I didn't sit back and plan this whole world before starting the story. You know, I, I, I got right in with the story first. 
I, I think generally I was very much drawing subconsciously on these influences, knowing aware of the influences, but not kind of thinking, okay, I want this boy to be Poseidon. And, you know, I love, I love mythology and I love fantasy stories and I just love kind of letting them all kind of blend together in my head. And I, I'm not too particular about being like, okay, well, I can't make, I can't go mixing Greek mythology and, and kind of Christian mythology. Like I'm quite happy to, to let those things kind of sit, settle in together. So um Obviously, there's a second book and a third book. So when you sat down to write the first one, did you have an arc in mind for where it would go after this? No, so I very deliberately didn't, actually. I need to make sure this story has an ending and I need to make sure that this the, the story as a whole is self-contained. So it's not just a, a story that kind of continues on to into the next book. But I also just wanted to leave just that little thread for possible books. Mm. in the hope that I would get to write them and I did and I and I think that helped actually to really think hard about this book standing by its own on its own because I think there's a tendency for fantasy writers especially to want to just write this big sprawling epic mm. that doesn't really stop until the very final book and it really helped me to think about the you know to to force myself to make each book really individual and stand by itself I think that's so important. Otherwise, you end up with a second book that's got neither a beginning nor an end. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. cool, that sag in the middle, as it yeah. were. Um, now, I'm really interested because you have a daytime job as well, as this, mm-hmm. if this wasn't enough. I understand you're a biochemist, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So they seem as though they might be very different to each other. I just wanted to ask you whether there were any connections between your writing and your daytime job, as it were. My passion for science definitely is a big part of this story. Ellie is kind of a proto-scientist. She's, you know, um, basically the equivalent of kind of like a, you know, a, a Victorian kind of natural philosopher. And so there was a lot of, a lot of that influenced her. And I think my, like, I, I have quite a, when I write stories, I really want them to feel very real and grounded And I think that comes from my same kind of place as kind of my scientific background, kind of wanting to make sure I understand the rules of our world Mm. filters into when I'm making completely fantastical worlds to make sure that they also feel real and they have a kind of inner kind of mechanisms that make sense, which can be annoying sometimes because, you know, sometimes you just want to tell a really fantastical story in a completely fantastical world. But but, um, I do have this kind of need Mm. to make things ordered people always say oh how, how can you be a scientist and a writer that's you know artists and scientists they're completely different things but I think you know I think people don't quite realize how much of a scientist's job is actually telling stories and trying to like convince people of the way the world works and that 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 requires a lot of narrative it requires you to be able to tell a tell a convincing story so uh just to finish off strong can i just ask Mm. you to tell us the titles of the next two books book two which is already out is called shipwreck island and book three which is not yet out but will be next year is going to be called it's called uh, eternity engine brilliant well, can I just congratulate you again on winning the Bramford Bows? It was a strong field and it must feel great to have won amongst such other excellent novels. No, it's a, it's a great, great thing. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, 
visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.